But we're going to read from God's Word, from, chapter, from verse 1 of 1 John chapter 5. We read that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you, you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother that commits a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I pray to those, I, I refer to those Whose sin, whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that we should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's just come and pray. Father, we want to thank you about these tremendous words about our faith and our confidence, our assurance, words that remind us of what you've given us and what you've done for each one of us in Jesus. And sometimes, Lord, it can be easy in a place like this, in a country such as ours, where still 
there is religious freedom just to take this for granted. But Father, tonight we want to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and parts of the world where they're not free to praise the name of Jesus. We want to remember particularly tonight the, the Christians in Burkina Faso who today were, were killed during a worship service. We want to pray for them. We want to pray for their families. And Lord, we want to pray for those who attack them. We pray that you'll bring them to repentance. We pray that you'll bring comfort to the families. And Lord, we just thank you for your people who gather week by week because of the hope that they have in Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for their powerful witness, their testimony, and that down through the centuries it's been the witness of the church in persecution. That determination to keep on with you and that readiness to keep on loving despite the cost. Father, continue to strengthen and to bless your people. And Lord, we pray, be with us now. Speak to us and strengthen us in the things of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said tonight, we're going to finish this series on, on First John. And I don't know what help this has been for you, but it's been of great benefit to me. So I'm happy. The, the study that's involved at looking at just where doctrine and experience should should figure in a, a Christian's life because that's basically what this letter predominantly is about. The balance that must always exist between these two with doctrine, though, always being given the priority. Doctrine, Bible truth being the basis, the foundation on which all else is built. As we've looked at this and along the way, we've looked at all sorts of other related issues like holiness, like love, this morning, assurance. We're looking at these topics, which are of such vital importance in the actual living out of Christian life and experience. This has been of great benefit to me. What I have to tell you now, though, tonight, is that vital, though all this has certainly been and central to Christian faith, though all these doctrines certainly are, Yet none of these are what actually make us Christians. No, what makes us a Christian is faith. Faith, which I've, I've heard and read defined as, as trust in God's truth, trust in God himself, that then leads on to action, to deeds of faith in our lives. So you see, here, what John is doing in 1 John chapter 5 is he's doing what men with big appetites sometimes do to the annoyance of women with small appetites. I know this because I've done it. He's keeping the best. He's keeping the most important thing to last. You see, what we've looked at so far are either part of what faith is. For example, doctrine is, is part of faith. You cannot have true faith without a right understanding of who and what we've placed our faith in. And experience too is a part of faith, for true faith always involves to one degree or another an encounter with Christ, an experience of Christ that then leads on to a changed attitude, a changed outlook on life, to a changed and transformed life experience. 
Or if they're not part of what his faith itself is, then they're, they're the evidence of faith. They're the outworking of faith in our lives. Things like holiness and love, etc., etc. These qualities, as they're present in our life, they prove that our faith really is something that's true and real, that faith really is alive in our hearts. But although these are part of faith, although these are part of the working of faith, none of these actually constitutes faith in itself. You see, faith is these things, and yet it's more. So what is faith's extra dimension? Well, tonight we're going to try and uncover something of that, as well as remind ourselves of some other always essential truths about faith. So let's look at faith, looking first at the focus of our faith. So what then is the focus of Christian faith? What is it? Who is it that should stand at the very heart, the very centre of our faith? Well, verse 4 to 6, as you read them, build up to a crescendo at the end that makes it clear that it is Jesus who stands at the heart of Christian faith. That it is Jesus who is the focus of our faith. But, you know, in verse 6, a very unusual phrase is used there in, in relation to Jesus and to his work in ministry. A phrase that's, that's so different from what might have been expected in this context that John could only have chosen to use this to try and stress something that he saw as very important. Now, let me just read these verses to you again with this phrase set in its context. It says, Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came this is the phrase, by water and blood. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. So what's the, the meaning of this? What's the, the significance of this obviously important little phrase? Well, various suggestions have been made. One is that this is a reference to the death of Jesus on the cross. With this being tied in to John's Gospel, John 19 34, where there John records that one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of, of blood and water. With the fact that in his gospel, John sees this as being of special significance, being made clear by the comments that he then adds on to this. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. Now, in John's Gospel, the significance of this, I think, is fairly clear in that I believe the separation of fluid, of water, as they would see it, from blood is an incontrovertible proof of death. With this then proving to any possible doubters that Jesus really did die on the cross. So these two verses then, in this context, are seen as being connected, John 19, 34, 1 John 5, verse 6. And so then the heart of our faith, the focus of our faith, is seen to be that it is a faith in the death 
of Jesus. Now, I believe that's undoubtedly true and is certainly part of what John intends here. But, you know, if this was all that he was trying to say, if this was simply what he was trying to get across, then why does he use this, this confusing phrase at all? Why not instead just talk of the death of Jesus, of importance in, of faith in the death of Christ? An alternative to this is that others see this as a reference to baptism and to communion. And again, you can see that the logic here for these two symbols do relate in a way to, to the two sacraments, the water of baptism and the blood that speaks of the sacrificial death of Jesus that's symbolized by the wine of communion. With both these two sacraments, as we share in them by faith, come to them in faith, being tremendous strengtheners of faith and, and channels of God's blessing into our life. But I want to ask, does this fit in though? Does this harmonise with what's actually said in First John? You see, this, this phrase, when it's set in its context, it's a context that speaks of the victory that has overcome our, our world, even our faith. Now that would suggest to me when you talk about the victory that has overcome the world, that what's intended by the phrase water and blood is actually something that's central to the mission of Jesus itself rather than to the sacraments which celebrate that mission. Now, okay, so if it's not the death of Jesus alone that's to be the focus of our faith, and if it's not the sacraments that point to Jesus that are to be the focus of our faith, well then, what is to be the focus? What does John intend by this little phrase, water and blood? Well, here, as I would argue, is always the case when we're interpreting God's word, and above all, when we're looking at, at difficult setting, sections of the Bible, context Setting that section, that difficult section, in its context is always vitally important. And here, this is certainly, I think, so relevant. For the background to this book, which we've referred to again and again as we've been working our way through it, was that a group of false teachers who had infiltrated the church and who claimed as essential to their false teaching that they valued the spiritual dimension to life above all, indeed that they'd had an experience of the Spirit that had brought them into a hitherto unknown intimacy of relationship with God, and yet who at the same time despised the body, who said that what you did with your body, that that didn't really matter, because your body's lost anyway, it's sinful flesh, it doesn't matter. No, they said, as long as you have had this experience of the Spirit, as long as you have the experience, then you're okay. There's no need for worry or fear. Now, all this is, is clearly unbiblical. But it's how this kind of thinking influenced their understanding of Jesus that's important for us here. Because, you see, with this kind of system of thought, they could not tolerate the concept of God actually becoming a man. And so what they did was they separated entirely Christ, who they saw as the divine spirit, from the man, 
Jesus. They separated the two. And what they said was that the Christ Spirit descended on the man Jesus at his baptism in the Jordan. And then after that, the Christ Spirit lived in Jesus, kind of like a ghost haunting a house. So God then didn't really actually become a man, but rather God lived within a man. But then, going on from this, as it was impossible for them to think of God the Spirit suffering and dying, they then went on to teach that the Christ Spirit left the man Jesus before his death on Calvary. So, as Jesus then hung and died there on the cross, he died simply as a man. As a noble martyr, perhaps, but he died as a man and is no more than a man. But one of the peculiarities that all of this thinking led them into was that they were prepared to go through a form of baptism. They were ready to do that because they said the Christ Spirit had been received by Jesus in that way. However, they had no place, no time whatsoever for the Lord's Supper. Because why, they said, should we remember the death of this man, Jesus? What possible help, what possible strength could they ever expect to gain by joining in that kind of celebration? Well, as you get that in context, do you see now why John, John uses this phrase, water and blood? Do you see what he's trying to communicate, trying to get across? That the focus of our faith, what is to be our focus... This very centre and heart of our faith is to be faith in a complete Jesus. That is in a Jesus whose mission began as he went down into the water of the Jordan. But a Jesus who did not finish that mission until he died at Calvary and shed his blood. Yes, it's a Jesus who came by water and, blood. and of course this is so important because faith in an incomplete Jesus, faith in a Jesus, say, who was God but not man, faith in a Jesus who didn't really die on the cross for us, well that actually isn't faith at all or it certainly isn't saving faith because Jesus had to be a man in order to stand in our place take our sin and save us. And he had to die as God because only the perfect sacrifice that God could offer could pay that price of our sin. So you see, although to some it, it may seem maybe that these people got quite close by believing in Christ as God, but the reality is they didn't get close at all because the focus because the heart of their faith was miles away, a million miles away from true biblical faith. But, you know, we say we don't have this problem, do we? No, we don't. We have a very clear belief in Jesus as both God and man in churches like ours, as the God-man who suffered and died for us. But I'll tell you what, I think in the church today that we have our own growing problem with an incomplete Jesus. Our problem, though, is a different one. It's a problem with a Jesus who is saviour, but who's not always seen 
are practiced as Lord. A Jesus whose blessings we're eager to seek and ready to enjoy. But a Jesus, the lack of whose lordship in the lives of Christians shows itself in a whole variety of ways. That is in the fact that, for instance, there are people and possessions, activities, things that we do that clearly come first before him. And this also shows, I think, in a, a reluctance among God's people, a reluctance to serve him in the church and then to serve him as the church out into the wider community. Because if we are not willing to be servants of Christ, then how can he truly be our Lord? And you know, that is a big question. Lots of people have debated this over the years. Can someone who only knows Jesus as Saviour and not as Lord truly be a Christian? Can they be a Christian? I would have to say, I would say, no. That this attitude shows that we haven't really repented. It shows we haven't really owned and turned from our sin. And for me, at some stage, you must own Jesus as Saviour and Lord if you are to know Jesus at all. Because quite simply, he is Saviour and Lord. This is who Jesus is. And of course, you, you might backslide from this. You might fall from this. And it is impossible for us men and women to tell the difference between someone who's never really made a true commitment and someone else who's backslidden from it. But if we, if we do backslide from this kind of commitment, I would say that inevitably, because of that, our Christian experience is going to be dissatisfying and it's going to be frustrating. Because how can we ever expect a half-hearted faith to be a fulfilling faith? We can't. Only a complete Jesus, who is owned as both God and man, seen as both Saviour and Lord, only that Jesus is fit to stand at the heart of faith and to be the focus of our faith. With anything less than that, what we might call faith is not faith. Fall from this, and our experience of faith will always be just substandard. Okay, let's move on to try and answer another question of faith from this passage. That is, if a complete Jesus is the focus of our faith, then what is the source of our faith? What is it, who is it, that actually brings about faith in our lives? Now, many people here would say that the real source of faith is reason. It's reason. That it's as people look at the proofs for faith and then they're convinced by them, that it's then, once all their intellectual questions have been answered and all their different problems have been solved, it's then that they can come to faith. Well, I would say that I agree that Christian faith is a logical faith. That there are many logical reasons and logical arguments that support the absolute reasonableness of Christian faith. And yet, I would also want to argue that reason in itself can never be, should never be, the ultimate source of our faith. Why? Well, for one, for one thing, 
If this was so, if faith was something that we could arrive at by our reason, then faith would be something we could take pride in. It would be something that we had arrived at by ourselves. It would be a work, and so our faith would be destroyed by our sin, and it would be of no use whatsoever in maintaining, establishing a relationship with God. Another reason that makes an overstress on reason, I believe, dangerous is that this can give some people just a convenient excuse for not coming to faith. It can, because while there are many legitimate questions that some of us need answered, yet I've known people, I'm sure many of you have too, whose lists of questions and problems have seemed unending. And, you know, I have to say, I believe that what many of these people are doing is they're using reason as an excuse. You see, their consciences have been disturbed by what they've had in the gospel. It's brought a challenge to them. God's been speaking to them. So what they do is, is they try and hide behind reason. They try and use reason to avoid facing up to the gospel with all of its costs and its ongoing implications. But you see, although I believe with all my heart that Christian faith is a reasonable faith, I would also want to say it's never going to be something that we are ever going to ever fully understand. I mean, can we ever really expect, with our limited, finite, sinful minds, to be able to fully understand an infinite God and his dealings with us and with this incredible world, world that he's created? I don't believe we can. So while reason has a part to play in faith, yet faith does not come by reason. Reason is not the source of faith. Rather, as the Bible as a whole, and as verse 6 again here, makes clear and underlines, faith comes by the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. He is the source of true faith. Verse 6 says, it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. You see, we come by, to faith by the Holy Spirit. We come to faith as we're convicted by the Spirit of sin. We come to faith as by revelation the Spirit opens our eyes to see our need and to see the Savior that God has provided to meet that need, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And of course, all this is backed up by what we find repeated again and again elsewhere in, in the Bible. For example, the, the famous verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. And we find this, this all worked out and illustrated in real life in the Bible as well. For example, in Matthew 16. Where Simon Peter, remember, makes that first amazing confession of Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of the living God. So what did Jesus then say? Did he say, well done, Simon Peter. You did well to reason and figure all that out. You did well to come to all the evidence in my ministry and come to the right conclusion. No, he didn't say that. What he said was, 
Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was revealed to you not by man, but by my Father in heaven. What's the relevance of all of this? Why does it, it matter? Well, it matters, I think, first to those of us who are Christians. Because surely, as we think of it, this is a tremendous encouragement to us. To know that the source, that the origins of the faith that is in our life lies not in us. It's not about me. It lies not in my intellect. It lies not ultimately in my decision. But rather it lies in God. It lies in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you see, while our minds might be able to be changed, yet the facts are that nothing can take us from God's all-powerful hand. Once God has saved us by his Spirit, we are safe and secure. That salvation can never be taken away. And for those of us who maybe aren't yet Christians, I wonder if there may be a challenge here for us. In that are we maybe tonight using reason as an excuse not to face up to the challenge of the gospel? Are we using questions, a never-ending list of questions and problems to actually try and avoid facing up to Jesus Christ head on? For I have to say to you, you will never know all the answers. You never will. And the fact is, you actually don't have to know all the answers. All you need to know is that there is sin in your life and that sin separates you from God. And to know that God came in Christ to die on the cross to pay the price of that sin. That's all you've got to know. And all you have to do is to say yes to God. All you have to do is by an act of faith accept what God has done for you. Accept Jesus Christ for who he is. God and man. Saviour and Lord. So is God maybe, I don't know tonight, at work in your heart? Is he convicting you, giving you no peace? If that's the case, then I would say to you tonight, Stop making excuses. Stop running away and respond to him. And you know, once you do, once you make that step of faith, do you know what will happen? You'll find that so many of your questions and problems just disappear. They're either answered or you'll find they just don't matter anymore because once God has touched our heart, once we've got the big questions of life answered, once he fills us, with his grace and with his spirit, then we know that we can trust him with all of our life, the known and the unknown, the things we understand, the things we'll never understand. We can trust him. There's just one final question I want to look at with you regarding faith, and that is the fruit of faith. For see, you see, a big problem is that at times people look at what the fruit of faith should actually be. The kind of things that should be seen in our lives that we spent a lot of time looking at over recent weeks and months. You know, things that we've mentioned like 
holiness and the kind of special love of Jesus that should be seen. And, and they look at all this and they decide, that's too much for me. I could never make those kind of changes in my life. I could never live that kind of life. That's beyond me. I couldn't do it. So I can never be a Christian. And you see, what I believe is all important here is, is seeking to discern what actually underlies this kind of attitude. Is someone saying, as they say this, I don't want to be a Christian because of the cost involved. I don't want to be a Christian because of the criticism maybe and the hostility that I might have to endure. Now, if that's the case, then like with the rich young ruler who Jesus had to send away with sorrow in his heart, if that's where someone is, then God can do no more in that person's life until that attitude changes. And for us to suggest something other, say for us to try and and dilute commitment to make it easier so that they can just squeeze into the kingdom, that's wrong. That's outright deception. Because you could only truly become a Christian on God's terms. There's no lowering of the standard. It's in God's terms and his alone. But you know, there are other people though who are put off Christian commitment in the same way because of these fruits of faith but their problem though is very different it isn't a problem of a lack of desire but rather it's a problem in the sense of a devastating sense of their own weakness and their unworthiness you see they fear that again and again that they would let the lord down so it's not then that they don't want to be a christian but it's the fact that they fear that they lack what it takes to live as a Christian. Now to someone who's in that place, if you're in that place tonight, I would say to you, look at what it says here in 1 John 5 verse 4. What does it say? This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then 1 John 4, verse 4, chapter earlier. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now put it all together. And what's that saying? What is it saying? is that it's not about you. What it's saying is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that brings Jesus into your life. And then at that point, his power and his resources, they become ours in such a way that we're able to overcome our weakness. We're able to overcome the world. And we're able to live in Christ's victory life now. Let's be clear, we're not saying this is easy. We're not saying that we won't sometimes slip and fall. We're not saying that because we're doing all this with the remnant of a sinful nature in the context of a sinful, hostile world. But however, as we put our faith in Jesus, then things that seemed impossible before begin to happen. 
changes that we could never before have imagined begin to take place. Because in Jesus, as the result of our faith in Jesus, the God of the impossible, the God of transformation, he comes and begins to work in our life and then the fruit of faith abounds. So the question is, tonight, do you want to know this God at work in you? Tonight is it maybe time to stop making excuses about how difficult you find it to believe, about how unsuitable you are for God to use and for to be a Christian. Is it instead time, by faith, to step out and to let the God of the impossible begin to do his work in your life? Or maybe you are a Christian. And maybe a long time ago, you put your faith in Christ. But that was a long time ago. And you've since stopped living really in faith. you stopped living with God truly as Lord of every area of your life. And because of that, you know that you're not really growing and progressing. That you're going nowhere as a Christian. And you have been maybe for some time. So is God tonight calling you by repentance, by turning from your sin, by giving your life afresh to him? Is he calling you tonight to put that right? Is he calling you to again to get your life to that place where he can begin to move and walk in you again in his mighty power? Do you know what? I know God is calling you. I know he's speaking to people. The question is, are we going to respond? I say to you, do it. Is God speaking into your life? Do what God is asking of you. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your grace and your power. We want to thank you that you, the God who worked in the time of Jesus and the apostles, that you're the same God, that you're working in exactly the same way. The God who gives people courage to stand in countries like Burkina Faso and so many other parts of the world, in the most dangerous context imaginable, to stand for their faith. Lord, you're the same God who's at work here tonight in Hamilton Baptist Church, and you want your people to respond to you. You want us to step out in faith, to come to you in faith, you want us to live in true faith because you want us to know the blessing that that faith will bring. Lord, help us to respond to you and to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.